join me in 1 Peter chapter 2 again this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2. Last week we began, if you remember, Peter's section that is the really the greatest and strongest apologetic for the work of the gospel in a sinner's life, and that is that we would be known as submissive people. Submission, again, is portrayed throughout Peter's writing on this matter by focusing on every arena of our life. And it may seem that submission is not really where we want to be this morning. It's not, not really anything anybody enjoys. We are all independent creatures by nature, by our fallenness, by our sin. We are rebellious. We naturally want to do our own thing. Last week we looked at authority that God has granted to the civil magistrate and the civic square and the call of the believer to learn to submit in that arena so far as we can. But so far as we can, we must submit to those whom God has ordained into positions of authority because he has created them. And submission to the magistrate, so long as he does not contradict God's law, is submission to God. This morning we find in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, a, a call for submission in another difficult place. And perhaps this one is not seemingly as difficult, but it actually is. Because when we submit to this authority in our lives and to this arena of our lives, we get paid. We're dealing with submission to those who are our masters or those who we would call our bosses in this text this morning. And so let's read the word of God and then pray and pray that the Lord would instruct us that we would learn to live submissive lives, a defense of the gospel by our lives in the places that we work and we serve. Beginning in verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called to this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return while suffering. He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously." And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now 
you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That sends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you, for, thank you for loving us enough, loving your own glory enough to reveal yourself to us so clearly. God, you are such a great and worthy God. I pray, Father, that my life and the life of everyone here this morning would reflect who you are in the way that we live our lives in the marketplace in the places of our employment, in the places of our labor, whether they are outside or inside the home, that we would live submitted to you and that that life changed by the gospel would reflect your glories as we learn to submit to one another. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, who did himself bear our sins and our sorrows that he might bring us home to you, Father. It's in his name we pray. Amen. When we look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 through 25, it immediately, in our day and age at least, it shouldn't be, but it does become very politically incorrect. Because the subject matter that we are dealing with here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, is the relationship in Peter's context of dealing with servants, slaves, and their masters. I know that's not popular to say anymore, but that is how it is. This is the context immediately that Peter is dealing with. He is dealing with servants or slaves and their masters. And again, that context is not our own immediate context, and so we must transform our thinking to the Word of God as closely as we can. And so as we do that this morning, we are addressing really what in our day would be the relationship of employees to their employers, those who work and those who have given the work to be done. And as Peter is addressing this to his hearers this morning, we need to know that the majority of those to whom Peter is writing this letter are in the category of servants. They would have been slaves to Roman households and Roman masters in Peter's day. And so these are people who are largely under, at times, very difficult circumstances, Peter does not address the issue of slavery here. That's not the purview of this particular passage, but rather he addresses the pressing needs of those who were the slaves. Now, what type of slaves were they? In the New Testament, there are different words for slaves communicating different things about them. These are not galley slaves, those who were chained into the bottom and lower levels of a ship to do the rowing. These are rather household servants who were esteemed members of the family. They were uh, given uh, the privileges of living in the house and managing. In fact, if you study Roman history, these were some of the most important people in Roman society. And so they're not, Peter is not writing to people who are engaged and part of and suppressed by chattel slavery, which no one 
would endorse or say is a good idea, but rather those indentured servants or those who even in Roman culture would sell themselves into slavery in order to provide for themselves when they could not provide otherwise. We tend to measure everything through slavery as we understand it in our modern context as in American history, but that is not always the way the Bible refers to it. And and we need to be studious enough and uh, be capable enough in our own reading and research to go back and realize the differences. And so we're not commending or condoning slavery as it is engraved in the American consciousness, but getting back to the days in which Peter writes. If you go and read about Roman Servants, household servants, they were, again, loved, and many of them were treated just as more family members. In fact, there was a period in Roman history when the most important things about a family's livelihood and business were entrusted to these servants. The family was engaged in in, in living the good life and couldn't bother themselves to run the business or to make the important financial decisions. And so these people were so important that they would be given that task. And again, they were sometimes a, a result of being captured in a war and brought into households. Sometimes they were born there. Sometimes they were uh, ordered into this uh, as a result of debt that was owed, and they would be sentenced by the court to so many years of servitude until they worked off their debt. And sometimes they would, as I mentioned earlier, actually find themselves as free men and yet financially in a bad place, and they would sell themselves for a period of time to live in a household and work as a servant. So really just a contracted employee. And so Peter writes to those servants this morning, those who were members of a household, those who were engaged heavily in the lives of those whom they served. And everything that I've said is not to disparage them as making it sound like their lives are always easy. They weren't always easy, especially as Christians. Because as Christians living in a house and being a servant in a particular house, they may have found a master that didn't necessarily like their new faith. And he would do whatever he could to make it hard on them. And Peter mentions that here, that there are both reasonable and unreasonable masters. No doubt that much of their anxiety of as being servants came from these employers who would make their life miserable and ask of them unreasonable service. And finally, some no doubt would do things with which the Christian could not comply. And that same principle comes back at risk of violating your own conscience and violating the word of God. You never do that. But insofar as you can, you submit. And so here we are. Peter issues the command in verse 18. Servants in these households, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Be be submitted to these people who, under any other circumstance would be known as those who bear absolute power and authority. In fact, it's interesting, the Greek word from which 
we get the word masters here in this text is actually the same word from which we get our word despot. They are despotic in the sense that they possess absolute power. They can do whatever they want. They are the owner of that servant. And in Roman society, there was no greater power than a master over his own servant. In fact, in the Roman rule of law, there were provisions that allowed a master to kill if he felt it necessary his own children, his own servants with impunity. The the masters that Peter is speaking of are people who have unquestioned power. They are despots. Now that does not mean that they all use it in a what we think of as a despotic way, but they do possess that power. And so what Peter says to these Christians who are finding themselves in a place of very difficult service. Now, I know that you're all sitting there this morning going, "Mm -mm. that's that's not the American way. I mean, we, we don't submit like that. We don't allow systems like that. I, this is not a relevant text for us, but it is. Because it shows the level of the apologetic of the gospel and the change that it can make and what these people in their situation had to do. Now, I'm thankful we don't live in a system like that. And I'm not advocating that we should have a system like that. But it is nevertheless the truth and this submission that Peter is calling them to just further demonstrates how powerful the gospel is. That it can allow people to exist in harsh, austere conditions like many of them would have had to endure. But what Peter is saying to them is this. Be submissive to your own masters with all respect. In other words, they are not to have a rebellious agenda. But Peter is, Peter is not saying that everything your master does is right, or even that the system itself is right. But what Peter is saying, as a believer, you are not to be a self-serving person, not to have your own agenda. To promote yourself, to promote the way you think it ought to be. And for those of you who have served in management, you know how difficult that is to have an employee who comes in and day one, they're not really happy about being there, but it's a job they have to have, but they're going to do it their way. How well does that work out? Well, not for very well and not for very long, right? And so as Christians, we are not to serve our, in our context, our bosses, those who have the rule over us, with our own agenda. I'm here, I'm begrudgingly here, and I'm going to do as little as I can for you because I have my own agenda. They're not, Peter is not uh, advocating hostile takeover, as we might think of it in a financial term. You're not here, this is not your business, it is their business, and you are to submit yourself to their plan with all respect, insofar as you are able to by the word of God. So wherever you can submit, you must find a way to do so. These servants, their life is really not their own. They only had two things to live for. And that was both subjected to a master. And that is what Peter's greater point is. Servant, be submissive to your earthly master, yes. But outside of your earthly master, you have a greater master that you must submit to. And that is 
the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we as American Christians might be tempted to think that our freedom frees us from everything when it does not. We are always servants to the Lord Jesus Christ. And where there might not be an earthly master over us, we are still servants and must adopt a servant's mentality of submission. And so these people to whom Peter is writing have two great realities. They have an earthly master and a heavenly master, and they must submit to both, with the heavenly being greater than the earthly. That is what is expected of them. Peter does not spend time exhorting them to pursue their earthly freedom. He doesn't say, you know, write a Magna Carta. They'll do it in England in a matter of a a millennia or so, but just go ahead and do that and free yourself. Pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps and develop democracy in the ancient Near East. It's not what he says. He says, learn to submit to your masters because in a greater reality, you are submitting to your heavenly master. And so he encourages them, he commands them, he exhorts them to do this. There's a greater power that Peter is drawing upon for them. This isn't just something that that they're called to find the inner strength to do. What, What Peter is doing is calling upon the power of the gospel. No doubt many of these readers would have read this letter and said, Do you know who I work for? Do you know what they're like? Have you heard the language they use? Have you experienced the verbal tirades that they throw out when they're not happy? Do you know, Peter? And Peter's saying, yeah, I do know. But this is what I know more than I know that. That there is a power in you that you are so freed by Christ from your own selfishness and your own sin. And the change that has been made in you is so powerful that you can endure that. You can work through that. You can love them through that. And that is what I am calling you to do because that shows the power of transformation that Jesus Christ has wrought in you. You're to make yourself a servant to the wishes of the masters over you to show what Christ has done in you. As far as you can, servants where it does not violate the word of God, and where it does not violate your conscience, you must show this type of respect. As much and as far, submit yourself so that your faith can be on display. And and notice that these are servants who did not simply go and then leave. These are servants who lived in the household. In other words, their life was a constant fishbowl for magnifying the power of the gospel. They could watch these servants in each and every circumstance, how they lived, and Christ could be more greatly magnified than he would have been if they had only been there eight to five. They lived there. Parents in the home, that is a mighty challenge for us. We are to show the power of the gospel 
to our children. The greatest arena, the greatest theater for the gospel is our home where those who live with us all the time see it. Not just on Sundays, not just at family devotions, but in all things we show the gospel. And that is Peter's ultimate concern here. That the gospel of Jesus Christ and those earthly masters might be won by their good reputation, giving them an ability to communicate with words that faith which they now held. Again, that conversion, that change strips away their selfishness and their independence and their what would be a natural lack of willingness to serve those who were over them. Peter, as you heard earlier in verses 21 through 25, brings home the gospel in its fullness, in its entirety, in its detail. But prior to this, there must be a wrestling with, a strife and a conflict that is overcome between servant and master so that the words of the gospel can be proclaimed. You have to earn the platform. You have to get in there and live with them and be with them, not begrudgingly, but joyfully, so that they will hear you and be won by your conversation that gives you an opportunity to preach to them. So do this, he says. If you love your earthly masters, which you are commanded to do, even though you may view them at time as your adversary, you must love them more than your own freedom more than your own comfort, more than your own enjoyment, and submit to what even seems unreasonable so that you have an opportunity to witness to them. That's the Christian work ethic. That's the Christian call. That's how seriously we ought to take the gospel. Now, I know, again, that that's difficult for us because in our context, if we don't like a job and we have a a difficult boss, we can just, you know... And nowadays, it's easier than ever, right? You know, you just go online, start hitting that resume. Send, 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 send. Get out of here. But what if the people of God determine, I'm going to stay somewhere to show what the gospel empowers people to do? To live out my faith when it isn't easy and when there is no other explanation for me staying here other than to preach Christ. Peter says, stay. Hang in there. Work to build that platform through which you can preach. When Peter says that they are to submit to their masters with all respect, it's literally fear. A reverential fear, a reverential approach. Notice that he he borrows off of the language of verse 17, which we covered last week. That we are to fear God, to reverence Him. And it would seem that fear in the previous passage was reserved for God and God alone. And Peter's not calling for them to replace God with their earthly masters. He's simply saying, you ought to have a reverential approach to your boss, a respect for your boss. That you treat them with a unique approach. They're not like everybody else. They're not your equal. They are your authority, and you should defer to that. So this, again, for for anyone in management, anyone who 
uh, is in charge of leading anyone does not give us as Christians, especially the license to treat people however we want. There's a, a call on the masters as well. If you read Paul and Ephesians, you're to be kind and tender towards your employees, towards your servant. If you found yourself in Peter's day as a person of means where you actually had servants, you were to treat them kindly, be good to them, treat them like family. And so Peter issues this command. Christian, we are able to do that. Some of you are, I know because you've talked to me on and off, you've been in difficult situations. You've had difficult bosses. You've had impossible workplace situations. And I, let me just say, I've been so proud of how so many of you have handled those situations. You didn't quit. You didn't rebel. You didn't make their life difficult hoping they would go on down the road. You did what you were supposed to do. You, For Christ's sake, you bore up under some unjust treatment and you demonstrated the power of the gospel to allow you to continue to work in that environment even though it was stressful and not easy. And praise God for your testimony. It's a wonderful thing. And so, Peter, servants... Submit with all reverential fear to your masters. Again, not to those who are easy to work for, but also those who are hard to work for. The the word is morally bent, unscrupulous people, dishonest people. It's easy to work for a good boss. And I've, I've had some wonderful people that I've worked for that were just as sweet as they could be, and they, they were wonderful people. And I praise God for them. Those are the easy ones to do this for. It's the hard ones, right? That's where the rubber meets the road. And Peter says, them too. Them too. Submit to them as well. Notice that Peter doesn't give any caveats. He doesn't say, well, if they do this and do this and do this, then you're free from this. You know, one of the things that frustrates me in our culture is we have to nuance and preface and caveat everything to death. I I mean, you really do. You're afraid to say anything without a list that's like this long of just to make sure no one is offended, right? Peter doesn't do that. It's just a carte blanche. Here's the statement. Bottom line, all masters. Even the ones who are hard, even the ones who are morally bent, unscrupulous, dishonest, morally bankrupt people, them too. In fact, especially them, because they need Christ. Serve them. Labor for them. Submit to them. As far as the word of God will allow you to go, which is maybe a lot further than we would want to think. You know, I think a lot of what we as Christians tend to take on is, well, it's really what we don't like. It's not so much that it violated the word of God. Well, there's a difference there, too. Peter says, if it violates the word of God and it violates the conscience, don't do it. But so far as you can, do it. Why? Verse 19 and 20. For this finds favor. 
For this finds favor. For the sake of conscience towards who? Towards who? Who are we really working for, Peter? God. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows, suffering unjustly. It's not easy. You are actually suffering. Some of these people actually suffered, were beaten, were mistreated, were not properly taken care of. And Peter says, for God's sake, submit to them. Not for them, but for him. You don't live for them, you live for God. And it is to him that you are ultimately submitted. And when you do, and when you have suffered, and suffered well, it will reflect positively. It will draw them to question and see God more clearly. Think about Christ. He is ultimately given as our suffering example in verses 21 to 25. But I want you to think about Jesus and Jesus' own submission. You see, Jesus could have left. That's the fact. He even says, I I could call 10,000 angels and get out of this situation. I don't have to do this. But I do this because it is the will of my Father. In other words, I am doing this as unto Him. Jesus lived, submitted, and it wasn't always easy, was it? In fact, it was never easy. And there is a statement that is made not by a theologian, not by an apostle, not by someone who thought highly of Jesus at the end of his life. As Jesus had submitted himself to his Father's will, Jesus had been taken to the cross. Jesus had been beaten. Jesus has died. And there is a man who is responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. And he is standing at the foot of the cross. And what are his words, that Roman centurion? Surely, this man was the Son of God. Because Jesus lived to do the will of his Father, the very people who killed him came to understand the truth of who he was. Be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. That centurion saw submission on display and came to the conclusion and the conviction that Jesus was the Son of God. I hope we get to meet him in heaven. Wouldn't that be a testimony? I'm the one who ordered the last blow of the last spike. I'm the one who ordered the spear to be thrust into his side. And I'll tell you, he is the son of God. He changed my life. What if Jesus hadn't submitted? What if Jesus had opted for the angel exit? That man would never have come to that conclusion. But he does because of Jesus bearing up. The idea is of sustaining a weight. 
Peter says, you are to bear up under sorrows, suffering unjustly. Carry the weight. Is there a weight you are carrying because you desire to be pleasing to God? Is that weight causing you to suffer mistreatment? You are doing it for God. Be encouraged, Christian. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't make you necessarily not hurt. But if you're doing it for God, there is a greater reason why we are living. And I think we've got to get that through our our minds in this day and age when we have had so much freedom. That we just cast off everything we don't like. We have the privilege of suffering for God. Carrying that weight of pointing others to him. In doing so, Peter encourages them and he says this. When you do this, God accepts your willing obedience, your willing submission to earthly masters as obedience to him. He goes, look what he says in verse 20. For what credit is there when you sin and are harshly treated? In other words, when you are treated with what you deserve, what credit do you get? Big deal. You deserved that. You were taking a nap on company time. You were, you were sitting around talking about the sermon on company time rather than doing what your boss told you to do and you didn't get your working on time and you're reprimanded. Nope, sorry. No credit. There's a right way to do that and a right time to do that, but you must work. So if you suffer because you've done wrong, don't say you did it for me. But, If you endure and do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. God approves of that. If you do what's right in the sight of God, you do good and then suffer with endurance and you don't give in to your flesh to lash back out at your boss. Or simply say, I quit. And walk out. This finds favor with God when we bear it. So that God might be known by them. And might be revealed to them in the power of Christ changing us. And being able. Listen. Unsaved. Unchanged men can't do this. They will snap. They will quit. They will respond with equal vileness, if not more. But a Christian, we can say, you know what? I can take that. Because I desire you to see Christ so earnestly that I'm willing to take your abuse. I'm willing to take you putting what seems like unreasonable requirements upon me. And God is pleased. One commentator describes it by saying this, that it accords with universal experience that a brutal, low-minded master, irritated by the feeling of moral inferiority, which was awakened in him by the side of the virtuous conduct of his slave, might in many cases subject the slave to cruel treatment. 
we're going to be living there more and more. So just prepare yourself for that. Your boss may be more and more irritated with you because you are living a morally upright life, and they don't like that conviction. Have you ever been around somebody who treated you badly, who didn't like you because they didn't like your life choices? Why? It makes them feel guilty. It pricks their conscience. Good! It's supposed to. It ought to. And then they turn and they make it more difficult, Johnstone says, and might in many cases subject the slave to cruel treatment, professedly, perhaps for some pretend fault. They, they just make up something. But really, as the slave himself and everybody around knew, it was because of the slave's well-doing. Don't be under the illusion that all the good you do will ex- be accepted by men, but it will be accepted by God. In fact, men may respond more violently to the good that we do. There's an example of that light in dark all around us, isn't there? Why else would we make it so difficult for Christians to adopt rather than to abort? They hate that good. They want the death. They want the sin. They want the depravity. They despise those who are truly pro-life, not in name only, but who are willing to say, let's adopt all those children. Let's place them in good homes. No, no, no. That makes us more mad. Well, you're not having to deal with it. Yeah, but I don't want to hear it. Goody two-shoes. Right? That's the world's response. But... Peter says you must do it anyway because it is not for man that you ultimately do it. It is for God. When you do it for God, that is our highest joy. It's our highest goal. Peter closes with the example of Jesus. I want you to notice just four things by category. We could go into this in great detail. But we lack the time this morning to do so. And Lord willing, we'll circle back around to this in a few weeks as the Resurrection Sunday approaches. But notice the example of Jesus in verses 21 to 25. For you have been called for this purpose. That since Christ, since Christ who is your master, has also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his footsteps. The perfect example is Jesus, and as the Bible is full of not only outright statements, but principle as well, that the servant is not greater than his master. And if Jesus suffered for you, you ought to also be willing and eager to suffer for Jesus if need be. And and so Peter says, you have been called to this purpose since Christ himself suffered for you, leaving you an example And I find the word example to be such a refreshing and clear and helpful illustration. The the Greek word literally means an underwriting, not an underwriter, as in the financial world, but an underwriting. And some of you uh, are in this stage, we are in our home, of teaching your children to write. I'm not talking about the boys. 
But you as parents know what this is like when you would take something and you would write it out and then get them to take a pencil and and put a piece of paper over the one you drew on and then let them trace your letters. You remember those days? Or, or you bought some type of little teaching tool that helps them to trace over the letters so that they learn, they get the feel, those motor skills of what it feels like to make a letter A or a letter B or a number one. And it becomes ingrained in their muscle memory. That's the word Peter uses. Jesus' life is the template. It's the thing that you can take your life and put it directly on his life and trace over his life and follow his example. It is for the most inexperienced student, the the beginner of all beginners. And what was that example like? Again, We call the witness not a theologian, not an apostle, not a fan of Jesus, but an opponent of Jesus to answer that question. What was that example? We find it in Luke chapter 23 and verse 4. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Wow. Jesus accomplished his work. He lived a life so that even his enemies were forced to confess his goodness. Does our place in the workplace, does does our submission to earthly bosses, does it communicate that? So the most vile, God-hating person you could possibly dream of working for, when you retire or when you move on and, or when they move on, they say of that employee, that Christian employee, who was at Colonial Bible Church on, on February 28, 2021, who heard this sermon and was challenged to go and live for Christ in this way, would they say, I absolutely found no fault in their work, their work ethic, their response. They were the best employee I ever had. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something? That is the example Jesus himself sets. In God's grace, you don't have to go figure out how to live in this world, live in the marketplace. You simply have to place your sheet on top of the life of Jesus Christ and trace. Follow. It's what you need is there, Christian. God loves us enough to give us his word to trace over that reveals his son. And when we do, we arrive at his example, our effectual call from God, the fact that God called us and not that we signed up for this because we thought it would be fun and a good idea makes it possible. For we have been called to this. God appointed us to this. God placed us here for this. You didn't sign up for it and go, oh, man, I didn't realize. Oh, God put us here for that. Called us out of darkness into light, from death unto life then let us not fail him if this is our task. We've not only been called to eternal life by God's gracious and sovereign call, we've also been called to suffer for his name. If Jesus suffered, won't we? Yes. John chapter 15, verse 20, 
Jesus says this. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. So if Jesus endured it, so should we. But look at Jesus' response. He did not sin. Verse 22. Who committed no sin. He never violated the holiness of God. He didn't violate the character of God. He didn't violate the law of God. He was perfect. He fulfilled all righteousness. What a savior. But then Peter goes on to say, not only did he not sin, he didn't deceive. You see, it's easy under persecution. It's easy under pressure to bend your ethics just a little bit. It's easy to give in to anger. When hard things happen. It's easy to want to revile back against false accusations. Especially those who are over us. To say oh yeah I'll get back at you. I know what you did. I'll just let that slip. Because I know. Remember I do your books. I see the cheating. I'll just let that out. No in Jesus there was no deceiving he was truthful in everything that he did he wasn't dishonest he was pure he was right when squeezed brothers and sisters our mouth becomes the organ that pours out the music of the heart when you're squeezed your mouth will sing whatever's in your heart fill your heart with christ So that when we are squeezed, it is not deceit or sin that comes forth, but Christ. For that's what Christ himself did. He didn't revile. Jesus in his earthly trial, you know this as well as I do. He was berated unendingly with false accusation, abused not only bodily, but mentally with with false statements. And yet Jesus, like a lamb to the slaughter, never uttered a word. Another good example. Proverbs says that in a multitude of words, there is sin. Jesus didn't say much in his trial, did he? Rather, when he was accused of being the son of God, he would simply say, you said it. Are you the son of God? You said it. Jesus didn't revile back. He didn't push back. He never sought to get into a, a, you know, a, a, a contest of who could insult who. More hurtfully, he just endured it. He was never vindictive. He was never angry. It never became personal with Jesus. So it shouldn't for us. When we're reviled by those who do not know God, those who have not been changed by the gospel, it's not you. When you're living righteously and they attack that and that is a provocation to them, praise God for that, that they saw enough of Jesus in you to actually hate you. That's a good thing. Don't revile back because it's not about you. It's about him. Use that as an opportunity to testify of him. And Jesus didn't threaten only he didn't deceive, verse 23, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Now, here's the funny thing about Jesus. They wouldn't have been threats. It would have just been done. 
Jesus had all the capability in the world of calling down fire and melting the whole place down. It would not have been a threat. When we say things, it's a threat. Oh, yeah? And then we say things and you can't even really follow through. Jesus doesn't even threaten. He, he, he doesn't. He keeps his mouth shut. Even though he had every power and every authority and every resource at his omnipotent, infinite, God-attribute-filled person to do it. He could have done it, and he didn't. And he just didn't. All of the above actions emphasize what he did not do. What he refrained himself from doing. The last statements in Peter's words in this section tell us what he did do. And what is it that Jesus did? He entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. God, my life, my times, my employment here is in your hands. Whatever you do will be right. Help me to respond rightly. Cause me to respond like Jesus. Because Jesus entrusts himself to the Father, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we hand our life over? It's not about us, remember? It's about him. So we hand ourselves over to him. And as imperfect people, brothers and sisters, we get this wrong, don't we? We get it wrong. We fail because we're fallen human beings. We fail because of sin or we fail because of human limitations or we fail to adequately understand and respond appropriately. But Jesus does not fail. He entrusts himself to his Father's will. Christian, if Jesus trusted himself to the Father's will and was treated so unjustly, you can too. Because let's be honest, you probably deserve some of what you get. Jesus didn't. And he entrusted himself and we can entrust ourselves and we can, we can wholeheartedly do what God asks us to do here. What did Jesus do? He entrusted himself to the Father and then he accomplished our salvation. The result of Christ's perfect suffering is that sinners were saved. May it be that through our testimony and our proclamation of Christ to others, through our suffering, God might be pleased to save someone. Not because we save them, but because we point them to a Jesus who dies. Wouldn't it be great as we get to that age and we retire, you know, retirement ceremonies and whatnot, and they list everybody's achievement for their career and Wouldn't it be great instead of all the things we did to make a business, to make our bosses more successful, people broke down and wept and said, this many people came to know Jesus in this company over these many years because you responded like you did. He himself bore our sin on the cross, carrying away, transforming us, changing us. He who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God through Him. 
That's why Peter wants these people to live like this. So that more people might become the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ that they hear and see from you. And you know, that's the greatest freedom. To know that people have been freed from sin. Not your freedom to live how you want to live, to work how you want to work. But freedom in knowing that there are people who have escaped the fire of hell because of your gospel proclamation. That's real freedom. To know that there have been lives rescued by Jesus. And when we do that, God is well pleased. There was a time, verse 25, when we were continually straying like sheep. What are sheep like? (laughs) Dumb. But more than dumb. Flat out, independent, stubborn. Don't do what they don't want to do. You know, Peter's not... Look, it's almost Eastern. You see it everywhere. We went to Mardell this week to get some stuff for church and all the cute little white lambs. Don't be deceived. That's not the picture Peter's painting of you. You are the stubborn, independent, self-willed creature. And you're off doing your own thing. You are straying away. But by Jesus, you've been brought back into the fold. We've been brought back to the shepherd, the one who will feed us, clothe us, lead us, protect us, ultimately bring us all the way home by his work. Now your work is to go to the sheep who are still lost, stubborn, and self-willed, and ignorant. They don't know what they don't know. Let your mouth and your life teach them. We spend more time in the workplace than we do almost anywhere else. Isn't isn't it amazing? And by the way, moms, because so many of you are so faithful in your homes, your home is your workplace. You, you, you do such an amazing job. So many of you working at home, unsung heroes. But, but we spend more time in our places of labor than we do anywhere else. It's our greatest platform for ministry then, to make Jesus know. Let's pray. Father, help us as we now come to your table to remember your son. Help us to be worthy of his name in how we live our lives in our places of work. May the redemption that Christ accomplished for us by shedding his blood, by dying and taking upon him our sins, not his sin, our sin, may that be told in our life, even through the difficulties of unreasonable earthly masters. We pray, God, that heaven, heaven's population will have been changed because of faithful Christians who determine to submit for the purpose of the gospel. We pray there will be people 
and exponential numbers there who are one to you by our life in the workplace. Help us now, Lord Jesus, to be sobered and cemented in our thinking about this as we see what you've done for us. As we hold the unleavened bread that represents your life without sin, without deceit, without retaliation. As it was ground out of you on that cross, as it is ground out, as we remember between our teeth as a symbol of that life being ground away. As we drink the cup that symbolizes the blood that flowed from your body, It was necessary to cover sins and to ratify the covenant that God had made to save his people. May we remember, may we be ever more determined to make those truths known to a world that needs Christ. For we pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.